turning in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We want to begin reading at verse 1. came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Let's stop reading there and look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning that we can be in your house And we thank you most of all that we can meet with you here. We thank you for your presence with us. We pray that you would teach us from your word today. We pray that you would help us to see the the message of Christmas and the message of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, of course, we want to Think about the message of Christmas. To do that, we've come to one of the most familiar passages in all of the Word of God. We're so familiar with these verses that you can give yourself a test, not right now, because you will leave the service in effect. But sometime this afternoon, give yourself this little test. See how many of these verses you can quote from memory from Luke chapter 2 you'll probably surprise yourself in a good way. Um, Most of us can quote many of them from memory. And that's a good thing, to have God's Word hidden in our heart. But what we do with it, what we do with what's hidden in our heart is important. And I'm afraid that we don't, do with these verses, what we don't do with these verses is where our familiarity becomes a problem. We confine them to a month, particularly, every year. But these verses are rich. They're full of prophecy. They're they're rich and they're full of the message of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the things that we want to think about this morning, particularly here in verse 1, where something very interesting happens. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy meet. I want to warn you up front that you are not going to hear anything new this morning. You aren't going to hear anything that you haven't heard before. The only thing different is many of you have heard these things presented far better by Pastor Kelly, who we miss greatly down to this very day. But with all that said, let's read again at verse 1. 
And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. When the Lord Jesus came to earth the first time, he came into a world that was under a one-world government system. That one-world government system was under the control of the Roman Empire. That brings us to the first point of prophecy in this verse. In Daniel chapter 2, in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and in Daniel's interpretation of that dream, we learn that there will be four world empires, only four. The first one was Babylon. The second one was Media Persia. The third, Greece. The fourth world empire would be Rome. Rome, if you remember, was the legs and feet of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Look back, if you will, for just a minute to Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in a little bit, but look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. And we want to notice that it is Gabriel that is speaking here. We want to notice that. We want to underscore that in our minds here. It's Gabriel that is speaking. Look at verse 21 of chapter 9. Where Daniel says, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, so what is being said from this point, chapter 9 and verse 22, is being spoken by the angel Gabriel. Now notice what Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. I want you to notice that it is the angel Gabriel that announces for the first time the coming of the Messiah, the anointed. That's what the word Messiah means, and it, that word only appears twice in the Old Testament, and it's here in Daniel chapter 9. And it means anointed, and it corresponds to the word that we read in the New Testament that means anointed, which is Christ. And it's Gabriel who is the first one to use that name. And that's important because a little over 500 years later, it's going to be the same angel Gabriel who's going to announce to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1 how his son John is going to go before him 
in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, who is it that John is going to go before? Well, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, here's Gabriel again. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel Gabriel said unto her, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So here in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel announces for the first time the name of the seed of the woman. He announces for the first time the name of the lamb that God himself would be. The name of the Passover lamb. His name is Messiah. And in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel gives us the name of the Messiah. His name is Jesus. The Son of the Highest. The Son of God. And Gabriel tells us three things here in verse 26 that we want to, to think about. First of all, he says that, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Now Isaiah explains the, the complete meaning of what that means. He tells us in Isaiah 53 how the Lord Jesus was cut off out of the land of the living. So that's a prophecy of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now who was it that was in charge? Who was it that oversaw the cutting off of Messiah? It was the Romans. It was the Romans. It was the Roman Empire. It was Pilate, the Roman governor who sent the Messiah to Herod, the Roman Tetrarch of Galilee. And you remember how Herod had wanted to see Jesus for a long time. But he had a, a strange way of showing his excitement. He took the Lord and he, with his men of war, despised and mocked the Messiah. Arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. It's the Roman governor Pilate who questions the Lord Jesus. It's the Roman governor Pilate who gives the sentence that the Jews required that the Messiah should be cut off, that he should be crucified. And it's the Roman governor Pilate who delivered the Messiah to the will of the, the chief priests and the rulers of the people of Israel. It's the Roman soldiers expert executioners who drive the nails into the hands and feet of the Messiah and raise the cross and not ease it down into the hole. They dropped it into the hole to maximize and inflict more pain. It's a Roman soldier who comes to break the legs of the Lord Jesus but when he saw that Jesus was dead already with a spear 
pierced his side. It's Pilate, the Roman governor, who at the request of the chief priests and Pharisees authorizes the guard at the tomb of the Lord for three days to make sure that his disciples didn't come and take his body and then claim that he had risen from the dead. It is the Romans from start to finish who are in charge of cutting off the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of the Highest, the Son of God. Then Gabriel tells us a second thing in verse 26, that the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And who was responsible for that? Titus. Titus and the Roman armies did that. And so in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, I think we can see a fulfillment of God's word spoken through Gabriel to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. It's the fulfillment of the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the image that he saw that God revealed to Daniel that the Roman Empire would be the fourth and final world empire. The empire that would be in existence when the Messiah came. And the empire that would oversee the cutting off of the Messiah from the land of the living. An empire that would be strong as iron. This is the description of it that we find in the book of Daniel. An empire that would be dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. An empire that would break in pieces and subdue until it had total and complete control. I'm sorry I have to keep sipping this. It's coffee, and I apologize, I can't offer you some. The total and complete control that we see in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Let, let's go back there for just, keep your place here in Daniel. But go back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Because in this verse, we see total and complete control. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Notice Luke tells us that. Luke is one of my favorite Bible writers. I think when I get to heaven, I want to look him up and see what kind of watch he wears. Because he's a guy that is concerned with time. And he, is, he time stamps all through his writings, especially here in the book of Luke. And so he tells us something here. It came to pass in those days, there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed. He tells us who gave the decree. The emperor of the Roman Empire, that's who gave it. That's who is in control here when the Lord Jesus comes into the world. And his decree is that all the world should be taxed. And notice the total and complete control of the Roman Empire in verse 3. All went to be taxed. 
everyone. Notice how the Spirit of God underlines this. All went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. There were no exceptions. There were no exemptions. There were no special circumstances like having an espoused wife who was great with child. Today, women reach a point in their pregnancies where they're under medical orders not to travel. Even though we have vehicles that ride today like you're floating on air. Now think about that and then think about Mary being great with child. In other words, that means that she was about to deliver <coughs> any day. So wouldn't the Roman government consider an exception for her? So she wouldn't have to travel the hundred miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem? They didn't even get a sorry. Nope. No exemptions. No exceptions. So Mary and Joseph had to make the hundred mile trip. Now, the depiction that we've grown up with is Mary riding a donkey and Joseph leading that donkey along as they travel. I don't see any mention of that here in the record. It could have happened. But even if it did, how comfortable would that have been for a woman who was great with child? Think about that, ladies. How it was when you were great with child. I've been on, uh, I've been through five pregnancies. <laughs> My wife's six. She's not here this morning, so you don't have to hear me say that. <laughs> But I've been through five pregnancies. I've been on the side that says, men, you know what I'm fixing to say. Honey, just hang on. It's going to be okay. That's what I mean when I say I've been through five pregnancies. But how was it with you when you were great with child? The discomfort of sitting anywhere. The discomfort of even sitting in a soft chair. And here's Mary having to make a trip of 100 miles, even if she could ride on a donkey. Couldn't there be some kind of exception? No, didn't matter to the Roman emperor. No family medical leave act here. The decree was that all should be taxed and all went to be taxed. That's how dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly the Roman Empire was. An empire that had and would break its citizens in pieces if necessary to subdue them until they were under the complete control of the government, including financial control. Notice the word taxed. The word taxed in verse 1. If you look this word up, you find that it means to enter into a register or records, and specifically it means to enter into public records the names of men, their property, and income. No privacy rights here. Just complete control. 
This is the one world government that existed when the Lord Jesus came to earth the first time. And it is the exact government when he, that will exist when he comes to earth the second time. If you still have your place in Daniel chapter 9, turn back there and look at verse 26 again. We said a little earlier that Gabriel tells Daniel three things in this verse. The third one is here about halfway through the verse. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the Romans are going to be in charge of overseeing the cutting off of the Messiah. The Romans are going to be the ones who are going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And the third thing is the people of the prince that shall come. The people of the prince that shall come. Notice the language here. A prince is going to come from the people who oversaw the cutting off of the Messiah, from the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. That was the Romans. And so Gabriel tells Daniel that a Roman prince, a prince from the revived Roman Empire is going to come. Look back at Daniel chapter 2. We mentioned the image there a minute ago, but look back at Daniel chapter 2. And beginning in verse 40 through verse 43, Daniel describes the Roman Empire. And notice what we read in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, these ten kings, they're the Ten toes of verse 40. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This is the empire that's going to be in effect when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth a second time. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So in the days of the revived Roman Empire, this prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple is going to come. And who is this prince? Well, he's Satan incarnate, the Antichrist. The one who Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And the world empire then is going to be exactly like the world empire that existed when the Lord Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago. The one world government of the Antichrist will be dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it will devour and break in pieces and stamp the residue. In other words, the Antichrist is going to crush all resistance. We read about that in Revelation chapter 13. <coughs> and the power and the control of the Antichrist will be such that Revelation 13.5 tells us that he will cause 
that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. No exemptions. No exceptions. And beginning in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16, we read, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. That's just what we read in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, isn't it? Sounds a whole lot like it. All the world being taxed. All the world being registered. Entered into a register, into public records. Like their names, their property, their income for the purpose of total and complete control. But then we read in Revelation 13 and verse 17 how the Antichrist, the Roman prince, the Roman emperor, if you will uh, allow me to use that term, will have total financial control of the world. Verse 17 says, Revelation 13, 17, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, in order to do that, the Antichrist is going to have to control all the finances of the world. Look over at Daniel chapter 11. Look over at Daniel chapter 11. Let's read at verse 36. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. And the king, the Antichrist, shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. That's just what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. Now look at verse uh, 43. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, And over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Notice those words again. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver. Folks, the way that the Antichrist will enforce his law, that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name, is through the control of the currency. There will no longer be dollars. I get sort of chuckling sometimes to think about people storing up uh, currency. Well, good luck on that. There will no longer be dollars. There won't be euros. There won't be yen. There won't be the Chinese RMB. There won't be the pound sterling. There won't be the Swiss franc. 
There won't be any other kind of currency. There will only be one single currency. And I believe it's already here. It's already here. I'm going to read you um, from two articles. I've combined them. They're both excellent. I'll be glad to send you a copy of them if you'd like. One's from the Wall Street Journal editorial page by Alexander Salter. And the other is from The Hill by Justin Haskins. I want you to listen to this. The Federal Reserve plans to consider the idea of launching a U.S. digital currency. Um, that's a very hot topic among monetary policymakers. More than 80 countries, representing 90% of the world's gross domestic product, are looking into the technology. So it's already, it's already in the planning. But these currencies come with serious risks. Without additional privacy measures, central bankers shouldn't establish them. So what's the Biden administration do? On March 9th, uh, the Biden administration released an executive order instructing a long list of federal agencies to study digital assets and to propose numerous reports about their use and proposal. Now, much of this executive order is focused on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, for example. They run on blockchain technology. Please don't ask me what that means. I have no idea. And they are getting more and more popular, um, not recently, uh, the drop in value, but um, many people still like to invest in them. But there's an even more important part of Biden's executive order. He has instructed the federal government and Federal Reserve to lay the groundwork for a potential new U.S. currency, a digital dollar. If the United States were to adopt a digital currency like the one discussed in Biden's executive order, it would be one of the most dramatic expansions of federal power ever made. Now, I want you to remember something. We're not talking about federal power here. Ultimately, we're talking about world power, not exercised by the United States, exercised by the Antichrist. Among other important actions, the White House order directs several federal agencies, including the Treasury Department, to study the development of a new central bank digital currency, that's a CBDC, come up with a report about it within 180 days. Then it directs the Treasury Department, the Office of the Attorney General, and the Federal Reserve to work together to produce a legislative proposal within seven months. So we're right in that timeline now. Unlike the current dollar, a central bank digital currency would not exist in physical form, meaning you wouldn't be able to go to a bank or ATM and withdraw it. It's important to understand that the digital dollar would not be similar to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin that operate on blockchain technology which is decentralized by design. No group or individual can truly control cryptocurrencies once they're launched. By the way, that's why the government hates those things, because they can't be controlled. 
Digital dollars, on the other hand, would be traceable and programmable. For example, a digital dollar could be crafted to restrict fossil fuel use, to give bonuses to people for spending at particular businesses, to enact de facto price controls by disallowing users from spending too much on particular products. It can be used to redistribute wealth. Central bank digital currencies are a perfect example of what Yale political scientist James C. Scott calls the seeing like a state mentality. Governments have strong incentives to simplify society for the purpose of social control. If widely used, these currencies, and they are going to be, these currencies would give central banks unprecedented power over the financial system. Without additional safeguards, virtually all transactions would be a matter of public record. Financial privacy would be difficult to maintain. Since this currency would be a liability of the Fed, the Fed could place conditions on its use to nudge users in desired directions. They could block payments to politically disfavored businesses. This isn't a huge stretch. The Fed has already involved itself in social and environmental policy. It is souping up in initiatives for supporting economic equity and quietly pressuring banks to disclose their plans for mitigating climate change risk. The temptation to manage a central bank digital currency in line with these agendas would be strong. Folks, think about what the government, I don't know a lot about Elon Musk. I know what I read about him or hear about him on the news. But I know one thing, he's a brave man. He's a courageous man for what he's revealing happened with the government being in cahoots with Twitter to control speech in this country, particularly in the 2020 election, and calling truth disinformation. Imagine that. See, we're already seeing this, in, this kind of thinking. ESG scores. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. There are financial institutions right now who are developing ESG's scores to determine the ethical impact of investments and whether a company lines up on the environment in a right way, whether a company lines up on social issues in a right way, like the LGBTQ movement, whether a company lines up on governance in a right way? Is it conservative? Is it liberal? And they're using that to determine whether those companies are credit worthy. Folks, this is how Satan incarnate, the Antichrist. The Roman emperor is going to control the world just as Caesar Augustus did. He's going to issue a decree that all the world should be taxed that all the world should be registered, that all the world should receive the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name, and all will do that. All will go to be registered.
No exemptions. No exceptions. And if you don't, you can't buy or sell. Because the Antichrist will have power over the treasures of gold and silver through this digital currency that he'll control. Keep your eye on this. Folks, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 is an amazing verse. It's the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy concerning the Messiah's coming into a world controlled by the Roman Empire. And the conditions that existed when the Lord Jesus came to earth the first time are the conditions that will exist when he comes to earth the second time. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 is this place where fulfilled prophecy and future prophecy meet. And it's a prophecy that's in perfect harmony with Daniel's prophecy. The conditions that will exist when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth again. I keep stressing that because before he comes to the earth, he's coming to the air. He's coming to the air to take his people out of this world. And what we see in the world right now, the digital currency coming more and more into play, 80 countries, 90% of the world's gross domestic product looking into going into this. We've been talking for several weeks about the LGBTQ movement. It's, by the way, it's right here in verse 37. We're told that the Antichrist will not regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. <laughs> That's a prophecy about perhaps the fact that the Antichrist will be a member of the LGBTQ community. But all of these things coming together tell us that the Lord's coming is near. It's at the doors. That's why the message of Christmas that we see in Luke chapter 2, I'd like for you to go back there. The message of Christmas that we see here in Luke chapter 2 is so eternally critical. Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Well, let's read verse 6. And it was so, and it was, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Look at verse 12. The angels tell the shepherds in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. In verse 7, we're told that Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And then in verse 12, the angel gives the sign of the Savior. The way that these shepherds would know that they had found Christ the Lord. How were they going to know? You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The Savior that the shepherds were looking for would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. If you look up the meaning of swaddling clothes, you find that there are strips of cloth for wrapping or swaddling. 
That's important because in John chapter 19 and verse 40, we read how Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes. If you look up linen clothes, you find that there's strips of cloth for swaddling the dead. The Lord Jesus was wrapped in grave clothes at his birth. That's what the choir is going to sing about tonight. From Christmas to Calvary. Because that's why he came. He came to go to the cross. He came to go there and give his life and shed his blood. The blood of God. So that we could be saved. So that the Lord Jesus could be born in our hearts. Has he been born in your heart? Has he? How many years have you celebrated Christmas about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet, He's never been born in your heart. He can be. He can be if you're willing to stop fighting against God and stop having your own will and your own way and turn to Him from your sin and ask Him to save you. And He will. He'll be born in your heart. One other point. Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 16. We've been talking about Gabriel a lot today. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There are three sounds mentioned in this verse that will be heard at the rapture. The first one is the shout of the Lord Himself as He descends from heaven. What's He going to shout? Well, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 kind of gives us an idea. Come up hither. Come up hither. The second sound is the voice of Michael the archangel. Why would Michael the archangel, why would his voice be there at the rapture? Well, Dr. Layman Strauss has an interesting thought as to why that is. He said at the rapture, the church is going to meet the Lord in the air. The air is Satan's domain he's the prince of the power of the air and so satan's plan is to hinder the rapture but at that moment michael the archangel the warrior he is the divinely appointed commander-in-chief of the heavenly host and if you look at michael all through this book He's engaging in conflicts with Satan and, and the powers of darkness, the fallen angels. At that moment, Michael's voice is heard. And Michael's army of angels will clear the way. They're going to clear the prince of the power of the air and his demons. And we'll meet the Lord in the air. No problem whatsoever. What an escort that's going to be. But what about the third sound in verse 16? The trump of God. 
Who's going to blow that trumpet? I believe it will be Gabriel. If you look at Gabriel through the Bible, you'll find that Gabriel is the announcing angel. Gabriel who announced in the Old Testament that the Messiah was coming. Gabriel who, who, who proclaimed the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Gabriel will blow the trump of God and announce the coming of the bridegroom to the heir for his bride. At this Christmas season, when we celebrate the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, are we listening for the trumpet that will announce the coming of this same Jesus to the air? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the message of Christmas. And we thank you that it is not an isolated event here in this book. It's an event that is the fulfillment of prophecy. It's an event that connects directly to the cross of Calvary. The swaddling clothes, the burial clothes there at the Lord's birth tell us why he came to seek and to save that which was lost us we thank you for the great love wherewith he loved us loved us so much that he commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us we pray that you would take that message and use it in the heart of any who are here today who are lost. And Father, we thank you that the message of your first coming connects to the, the message of your second coming. It takes us to the message of the rapture. Gabriel, sounding the trump of God to announce, as he did, the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the bridegroom. Or his bride, the church. And then it connects us to the conditions that will exist when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth to set up his kingdom. What an amazing message the Christmas story is. And we pray that we have believed it. If we know you as our Savior, that we will live in the light of it in the final hours of this age.